0: What's up? Welcome to the Confluence DC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators.
1: This week we had on Amir Kabir at AV8. av is an early stage fund that focuses on healthcare, enterprise, financial services and deep tech and within his role Amir focuses primarily on fintech and insurtech. In this talk, we cover four things that matter as a VC, finding product market fit as an insure-tech business, and looking for honesty when evaluating founding teams.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSC. Yo, everyone, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. Uh, today we have someone who is dope because they don't only do fintech and insurtech. They also have looked at a lot of really interesting stuff in healthcare, and those are my favorite areas of investment. So we'd love to invite Amir Kabir from Aviate to the Confluence Podcast. I'll let him give some insights on some of his accolades, his path, and maybe even tell us a little bit about the firm and and we can dive in. What's up, bro?
3: Hey, man, how are you? Good, Good to be on the show. Thanks for having me.
2: Of course, man. Thank you. Absolutely. So you want to maybe give us a a quick, quick overview of who you are as a human slash how you got to where you are as an investor?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I have to go back in time. I think first off, I actually was born in Iran and my parents, you know, immigrated to Germany when I was very little. So I grew up in Europe and Germany for most of my life and did, did undergrad over there, high school. And was very much interested in technology. If you ask my family, they would be like, yeah, and it was like playing with computers where nobody was really playing with computers. I was also very much like entrepreneurial. I don't know where I got it from because when I look at my family, none of the people have been really entrepreneurial, right? Most of my family have been deep into education. I have PhDs and doctors and stuff, but nobody really embarked on the entrepreneurial avenue, but I always was like, wanted to do stuff by myself or on my own and did undergrad in computer science and business and started working for a startup back in Germany. We built enterprise software that, you know, was kind of in the category of customer communication management. So we were basically building enterprise software that would sit on top of like core systems, such as CRM systems or ERP systems taking the core data out of those systems and create intelligent documents and customer communication through various channels and various business cases, such as HR management, sales management, complaint management, and so on and so forth. I was fortunate enough to be there very early. I think it was part of a very early team where we like 10 people or so, and that was back in the two, like middle 2000s, back in Germany, where everything we building was still on premise. So the cloud and systems were just coming up. And it was there for a couple of good years, and good at practice, and good at business, and we sold it actually to Actuate here in San Mateo, and the whole business is now part of OpenText. And at the end, I, where, where I knew like uh, things are coming to an end, I, you know, started my own company in a completely different kind of sector, which was an e-commerce world, with a back then friend of mine, and I think that experience was actually more. Kind of like eye-opening to me when you start your own business again, well, compared to joining in a startup, how many things you have to think about and how many things can go wrong and made a ton of mistakes over there. And we failed, obviously raised a little bit of money, but I think that kind of helped me in the mindset right now as an investor. And I actually made my way to the US after that, like roughly nine years ago, landed in DC, went went to business school over there, went to Georgetown to get my MBA. And a lot of people go to business school to transition careers or go into investment banking or like consulting and stuff. But for me, it was kind of like embarking more into the entrepreneurial world and see what's out there. And I had touched base with like VCs or investors back in Germany, but had the the knowledge that I have right now and was fortunate enough to Get involved in the entrepreneurial world in DC and tap my feet into the VC world with a couple of different partners over there. One was actually a partner at NEA who was starting his own practice, and he brought me on board to help him like set up his kind of VC shop as the first hire. And then I spent a good amount of time with the folks at Route Sixty Six Ventures, which is a premier kind of fintech fund and. So that's how I got into the whole fintech and insurtech world, where I was exposed to different deals and different startups. And I was like, wow, this is a very interesting field. And there's so many things to do here. And after that, actually kind of was recruited out to San Francisco by another fund and was the last kind of past six years I spent with Munich Ventures, which is the corporate venture capital arm of Munich Re, the largest reinsurance company. And helped build up the practice over there, I was a the number three on the team. We started with like one fund and $50 million. And eventually, like when I left, we were at over 20 people, four funds, a billion dollars on the management, over 30 investments, a couple of exits. So, and you know, recently joined Aviate Ventures, which is a premier early stage fund here in the Bay Area to run the fintech practice. So that was basically the. 5 minute overview to how i got to where i am today
2: very very dope would love to hear more about the firm like you all have done some of my favorite investments like i really really like your brave care company and in terms of in terms of companies that i've looked at in the past you all did peloton or peloton competitor Locomation, not the bike peloton <laughs> the the autonomous vehicle peloton you all did some yeah. really cool stuff in cancer. You did some great stuff in fintech, insuretech, et cetera. Obviously, I would love to understand the backstory of the fund, what you all focus on, and maybe even uh, a quick a quick piece of what drew you to the fund.
3: Sure, sure. So yeah, so the fund is roughly three years old. We're on the second fund. The first fund was 180 million dollars. The second fund is 180 million dollars. We're really focused on the earlier stages of a startup, right? So we focus on seed series A. I mean, these days, as you guys know, what is seed? What is series A? And what is even a series B, right? So it's kind of kind of all over the place. But the way we categorize it is that we really want to be hands on with the entrepreneur. We want to be part of the company building process rather than the spreadsheet process, where you just run some numbers and try to invest some money. And uh, we have we focus on like four kind of four sectors. One, as you mentioned, is healthcare, which is led by my partner, Ruchida, who has decades in that space. The other one is kind of enterprise software, infrastructure software, which is led by my partner, Barish, who spent also decades in that field and was an entrepreneur himself. And the third one is, we call it frontier tech, where the locomotions and, and stuff falls into, right? And the fourth one, which I was brought on board, fortunate for that, is FinTech and InsureTech, right? And the kind of investment thesis are really, you know, focusing on what is kind of next in those areas, what is really uh, going to change the future in those sectors. And what drew me to, to the firm, obviously, was the focus on the early stages, right? I, I as I mentioned, I'm, I'm an operator, I'm an entrepreneur. I really want to be part of the company building process. And I want to be really hands-on and help, to help the entrepreneurs out as, as much as I can. I think that was one of the reasons. And, and obviously, the team over there, everybody on the team has been an operator entrepreneur before. really was excited when I met the team and get to know the team and how they think about startups, how they think about investing, where they put their money and where they invested so far. So all of these things really draw me um, to the firm. And I think the third thing, that I want to highlight here is that I really enjoy working in a smaller firm than a bigger firm. I think decision-making is just quicker, right? You are more closer to the core and it's just faster to execute rather than being in a big firm where you have like 20, 30, 40 people where things, a lot of things might slow down, right? So I think these are the things that I want to highlight here for AVA.
2: Got you. How about, how about we dive a little bit into some of the, the areas you think are up next for you as you get your partner hands wet at the new
3: shop? Absolutely. I think InsureTech tech and fintech is, is kind of the focus areas and where I have built my expertise for the past, I would say, eight years or so. And there, there is a lot of opportunity and a lot of overlap with stuff that you mentioned before, right? Healthcare, frontier tech, mobility digital health, there's a lot of overlap and the firm already made a bunch of great investments that you highlighted, Bravecare, uh, Locomotion, with the autonomous trucking side, and I think I bring the expertise in with the investments I've done, right, when you think about what I've done earlier in my career, invested in HDVI, which is commercial trucking insurance, invested in Insure, which is commercial auto insurance, so there's a lot of overlap with with the future of trucking, a future of auto, whatever you want to call it. Then I invested in uh, digital health and Babylon Health, which actually just recently went in public. And there is a lot of overlap with what the firm has done here at AV8 with Brave Care and others. There there is a lot of things that we look at uh, holistically. But for me, when I think about tech and fintech, it's important that we talk about like. Before we talk about tailwinds and we should talk about the evolution of InsurTech and what the past decade or so looked like, I believe it is important and it will indicate where we are headed and what we expect next or what I'm looking for, right? So when you think about InsurTech, insurance technology has been around for a long time, but I just want to highlight maybe the last decade. I think one of the most prominent kind of InsurTechs that people might know about or heard about is probably the Climate Corp was founded by David Friedman. It was around two ten, and subsequently was acquired in 2013 by Monsanto for over a billion dollars, which was a big acquisition back in the days. And so I don't know if you guys know about that, but it was just crazy. It was one of the first big insure techs that, that kind of exited for over a billion dollars. And that was in 2013. And around that time, a lot of other kind of insurtechs emerged. And I think The last five years is really where the movement has been going rocket, right? So there has been a lot of things happening, and I was fortunate enough to be at the right time at the right place, too, with with my investments back in the days. And when you look at the last kind of five years and the stuff that I've invested in and spent most of my time in, it was mostly insure tech innovation that has been around the traditional insurance lines, such as auto, home, and renter, and some commercial sectors as well. But everything has been around product innovation and distribution strategy. So I think when you look at that and how that has evolved over the last five years, I think for me, where I see the tailwinds in that sector is a lot innovation will happen in, in the niche sectors and emerging markets. And has been a lot of innovation also happening on the B2B side. Along the insurance value chain, like right? startups working on the underwriting process, startups working on the claims, customer servicing, and whatnot. However, those startups really have had a hard time of finding really product market fit. I have to say, but it has been when you think about all of the insure techs that have been successful, that have been those that have touched the customer or touched kind of the profitability in terms of insurance, right? And on the B two B side, those startups that try to sell to insurance companies or financial services companies really had a hard time find kind of product market fit. There have been a few that seem to have product market fit or seem to have raised a lot of money, but I'm not sure where they are really in the process. So for me, the focus is really on the niche sectors when it comes down to product innovation and distribution and emerging markets. One of the things that I One of the topics that I'm really, you know, looking into is collectibles and collectibles insurance. I'm not sure if you guys are collecting anything, but the the collectibles markets is like a three to $400 billion market. And a lot of people associate collectibles with coins and cards, but there is now shoes and sneakers. So there's watches, there's handbags, there's NFTs, right? So all of that kind of space is so interesting and emerging where insurance is going to be a play a big part in, into that, and, or financial services in general, because it's not about only providing insurance. I think insurance, you can categorize also as a risk transfer solution and financial services in general, which goes into like lending against collectibles and so on and so forth will be a big part as well. I'm not sure if you guys saw, but one, one startup recently raised um, $5 million in seed funding for lending against NFTs. So basically, if you're an NFT collector, you can get liquidity against your NFT. I haven't talked to the startup. I, I found it pretty interesting. I think I'm interested to hear how they go about the volatility about the NFTs. But I think that's where the movement is going, right? And other kind of categories in that insurtech field are medical malpractice, which hasn't seen any innovation for decades. It's a $15 to $20 billion market. And people still work the old school way in terms of distribution and product innovation. Another kind of area which is interesting and hasn't seen a lot, and I've seen it in Germany or in Europe, which is interesting, but parental leave insurance, that's kind of an area. Another one is boating insurance, right? Recreational boating is a big market and insurance is needed for that. No innovation in that supplemental benefits and any kind of like risk transfer solution are, are the categories or things that I'm looking into. Another one which you know is emerging pretty rapidly, but few entrepreneurs are tapping into that is NDBI, non-damage business interruption risk, which is kind of like a very sophisticated insurance solution that provides security against non-damage, right? When you think about insurance. It's all about what kind of damage have you occurred and what kind of solution is there to provide to you. But what about non-damage business interruption risk, meaning like, think about the pandemic right now. A lot of businesses you know, were not able to operate the way they were operating, but there was no physical damage to them. So what kind of risk transfer solution is out there that you can help those businesses, if that makes sense?
2: That is all very, very interesting. Dude, now that I'm, now that I'm on the company building side, in addition to being an investor, you're saying all these things. I'm like, maybe I should build these things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, huh? Can, would it be interesting if, I know doctors have to have malpractice insurance.
3: Correct. Yeah. But,
2: uh, but actually like consumers may or may not want to go through the, the burden of trying to sue their doctor. <laughs> Is there a way yeah. you I like malpractice insurance on the front end?
3: The thing is, it's funny because I've looked into that, into that area for a while, and it's so fascinating to see, you know, medical malpractice, as you see, is obviously, as you know, is to help doctors, you know, be, be have a kind of insurance when the patient actually, as you said, comes and sues them. But most of the time, doctors are really kind of have insurance through hospitals or organizations they're part of, right? And there there is kind of a subset of independent doctors that buy medical malpractice, but the whole buying process of medical malpractice insurance is just so outdated. I was talking to underwriters to understand how the process works. And believe it or not, they were like, so if I want to underwrite a doctor, they have to send me their resume or their CV. They have to fill out a 20, 30 page form. They have to send me their licenses. And what I do is I go and see if they're lying. So basically they're doing a cross-reference check and basically a credential check of the doctor to see if he or she really went to that medical school, if he or she really has worked there, if he or she really has that license. And I'm like, this is bonkers. we in 2021. You can really, there is maybe not a unified database, but there are different databases that you can tab into to really get that data. So that's what I mean with innovation. There's so many things that can, that can help the industry in terms of the underwriting and also the claims process. But most, most fascinating thing is a lot of people think that medical malpractice is really associated with doctors being fraudulent, meaning they, instead of taking the right arm, they're taking the, wrong, the left arm, instead of taking the kit, they take out whatever else. But most of the medical malpractice claims are around dissatisfaction of the patient or not really understanding what the doctor is trying to tell them. So it's kind of interesting to dig more into that field, but there's so much to do.
2: Wow, man, I, I'm always curious as to what it would take, right? Like you have, call it 50 ideas for companies of those 50, you're pretty bullish that you write a check with no questions asked and probably 10, 15% of those companies, like I would assume. Sure. What would it take for you to get back to the founder side? Question that you have
3: or have to have. Yeah, that's a very good question. I always dabbled with that idea of going back and I had opportunities and people would and people would like approach me, be like, Hey, you have so much knowledge in that field, and why don't you come and join us? I think it's really on the opportunity side, but to be honest, like I really love my investing. I really love investing in startups and entrepreneurs. I really enjoy you know, helping multiple entrepreneurs rather than one cause. So, and bringing my expertise and knowledge that I've built over time. So I'm not, you know, saying I would never go back to a startup, but it has to be really something very compelling that makes sense to me, both operationally and also from my background. That makes sense.
2: Totally. Yeah. I'm like partially trying to recruit you to build something to me. I'm joking. (laughs) Uh, but no. in, in, In more serious terms, man, I think that VCEs see everything, but they also recognize that they can be valuable across a lot of different people's initiatives. And sometimes that can end up making more impact than just building that one vertical or specific niche within a specific vertical, right?
3: Absolutely. I think my strengths are really, you know, I I always tell entrepreneurs, I'm hands off and hands off, right? I'm in your corner, but I'm also giving you the tough love if necessary. But I, I really, as I mentioned, really love to be part of like, many companies, and many endeavors, and um, help those entrepreneurs with the knowledge and expertise that I have gained over time. So really putting all of that into one company, I feel like a lot of the strength I have will not come to fruition, if that makes sense.
2: No, totally makes sense. Well, we just talked about ideas, areas that make Mm -hmm. sense to invest in. What about people? What are like some non-obvious traits? So like, well, obviously, if someone has built a unicorn before, we should maybe back them on their sure. next. Sure. Yeah. Even though it's like the chances of lightning striking twice kind of thing, whatever. But what are some non-obvious traits you look for when evaluating founders and founding teams?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think if you think about the investing side, there's, I would say, three kind of things that people evaluate. One is obviously the team. The second is like the market that they're dabbling in, and the third is like the product that they're building in this market. And I think the non-obvious threats that I really focus on is how honest is an entrepreneur, right? I mean, there is a lot of people or a lot of uh, entrepreneurs that get the advice, tell this story, do this or do that, tell something that the, the investor wants to hear. But I'm looking more of for, for entrepreneurs that be like, listen. I have this conviction, I have this knowledge that I've built in this area, I'm trying to build this, there is a really uh, a market for this, but I still have to figure X and YZ out, right? I think these are one of the threats that I'm really looking for. Another one, which I always try to read between the lines. As an example, I was investing in a startup and back in the days, and my team was not really feeling the entrepreneur, but since I had a lot of interactions with them, I had a different feeling. And one of the reasons why I felt good about him is that he always was like, hey, I have to talk to my co-founder or I have to include my co-founder, right? That, that basically told me in that kind of moment is like, hey, he's not a lonely soldier. He's not trying to run this by himself. He's really a collaborative guy and he will probably listen. So all of these things eventually turned out to be right. And I worked with him and it was great. And with his co-founder as well and they're now raised a successful funding round after i invested in so it's it's like really the the nuances that you pick up during conversations and it's really actually hard to do that a lot of investors when we ask them they'll make a decision in like 10 seconds or a minute right i mean sometimes i've made that too but things have to go really wrong to make that decision you really have to have a couple of conversations and it could go either way because I sometimes talk to entrepreneurs and be like, wow, that's amazing. Then I have a couple more conversations. I'm like, actually, I don't feel that way anymore. So it it can go the other way around too. But besides that, I think it's, it's really hard when you meet founders. It's hard to predict beyond what that person or team is capable of doing today. You have to really understand what the person is going to be down the road, how receptive they are and how resilient and they are in terms of building this, how is their interaction with a lot of people? Because think about it. And there is a lot of people who build an analog between VC investing and getting married or VC investing and getting and dating. People always try to show their best foot forward and try to show how they are and, and highlight everything that is great. But I think that's not right. You should always you know look between the lines and try to figure out how this person is thinking, how this person will think down the road. Because in that moment, when you have a conversation, you know, they might show the best face, but down the road, you have to figure out how is it going to be once you wrote that check, once you wired that money, how is the collaboration going to be? Is it going to be exactly the way they should protect themselves or is it going to change? I don't know if I answered your question, but these are the things that I try to figure out when talking to entrepreneurs.
2: No, no, I really, really like how you broke that down. I'm curious after your years of experience in VC, how you might break down the same thing for VC. Like if you had to simplify the role of a VC, like what would you, what would you break down as the core functions and like, how do you evaluate if someone's good?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's, I think important for people to understand also who want to tap into VC and I didn't know it myself. I learned it over the last almost decade, I think. There's three or four things that matter in DC, and people might disagree, but I think that's what I learned or that's what I see. One is that, you know, you have the network and knowledge and you see the right deals coming in or you have access to the right deals. And that can be based on your network because you have been part of a strong network or part of a strong brand or whatnot, or you built specific knowledge around the sector And you can tap into your knowledge when you talk to entrepreneurs and uh, other groups. The second is, if you have that and you see all of these deals that are right and relevant, can you pick the right deals amongst those group, right? Because not every deal that you see might have some nuances to it, but picking the right one, I think, is, is the most important. And I think the third one really highlights what it comes to, and specifically in that environment we are in right now with so much money uh, going into startups, are you able to get into the deal and get a allocation? I think this is something that is probably the most, the hardest part, right? Specifically, if you're not associated with a big brand, with a big fund and so on and so forth, how do you make sure, even if you have the deals, even if you see the right deals and you can pick the right deals, how do you get a location? And the fourth one uh, might be reasonable and helpful if you're thinking about BC is that how would you help an entrepreneur after you have invested and how would you be helpful there but I think this is so far off that the first three things are so important that you have to think about and again the third point being how can you get in really and how can you get the allocation is the most important. Makes
2: a ton of sense. A ton of sense. I love the point of how do you be helpful. I think so many people fight to get the deal but aren't that helpful afterwards.
3: That's the thing, man. People like always like, oh, I help you here. I help you there. And honestly, the way I do it, and and you can talk to entrepreneurs that know me, is most of the time, I really help them without wanting anything in return. And it's really hard these days to build the relationship, right? When you think about it, deals are done within a day or two, and people have term sheets left, and you have to move really fast, which really, honestly, sucks. But usually, you build a relationship with someone. And I always try to reach out to entrepreneurs, even at the earliest stages when they're really brainstorming and really help them either with providing my knowledge or introducing them to people who might help them out or even partners. So I think once you do that before a deal happens, you really have short your value. There's It's always easy to go and be like, listen, if I can invest 2 million, I'm going to introduce you to my LP. I'm going to introduce you to X, Y, and Z. A few people really do it. So. I think that the helping part is, is not saying the easiest, but I wouldn't really think about that if I'm an entrepreneur. And I always tell my entrepreneurs when we're raising follow-on rounds, I'm like, listen, think always about if you bring in this fund or specifically this partner onto your board, how helpful can this partner be? Even just not making introductions or anything, just helping you th- think, think through the problem you're solving. What is the added value that this partner can bring, right? Or this fund in general, right? Because when you think about VC, there's just so much differentiation that you can get from different VCs, uh, either, either small, mid or big funds. Everybody, all of us have some sort of a network. All of us have some sort of, can help you with introduction to someone. If I don't have it I have someone who has the introduction. So I think these days, a lot of people, I feel actually, are not impressed anymore by big brands because they really want someone who has done that before, has seen the sector before, and can somehow help them build the company. Obviously, the bigger funds and whatever have done it multiple times and have the credit. But I think it's really about about these kind of things to think about. Sure. Clay,
2: please say Hello. <laughs> And uh, Amir, you want to maybe ask me and Clay any question in the world and then uh, Clay can take you out with some, uh, some quick fire.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Where are you based actually, uh, Tyler? Are you also in Florida?
2: Maybe a month or two out of the year I'm in Florida. (laughs) i know, I'm usually in New York, so call it like four to six months of the year I'm in New York and then I spend the rest of my time in Latin America and traveling.
3: Damn, homie. That's nice. That's not too bad.
2: It's 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 a very crappy lifestyle,
3: I'll tell you that. <laughs> Which part of Latin America are you?
2: I've done everything from Costa Rica to DR and Argentina, but I think Mexico is like the most accessible and like best, like if you think about cost to infrastructure to like closeness to the United States and ease of people visiting you, Mexico is like the easiest one. So I spent a lot of my time there, specifically in Playa del Carmen, which is right between Tulum and Cancun. Nice. Mexico
3: City. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, Latin America, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned it. It's, it's definitely like emerging market for insure tech and fintech and things have been booming over there. I mean, the venture money that, that flows into Latin America has been rocket right now. I mean, it's crazy. And I'm sure you see a lot of deals over there.
2: Yeah. One, I at point 72 did a ton of investing in emerging markets across Latin America, Southeast Asia, et cetera. And two, for one of my companies, we just had Tiger Global back our seed or lead our seed. And I'm not going to say which one, but we literally did a partnership with the company in Latin America because in some ways they're actually more advanced than we are. And, And learning from what they do because they have different sets of resources and bringing some of those innovations to the us is interesting so there's a double-edged fork it used to be like whatever happened in the us look at yeah. it in other places now it's whatever happened abroad
3: looking for it in the us and vice versa that's interesting that's interesting because again i like got looked into those markets and specifically from the fintech and insurtech side a lot of things are not really resemble you can really resemble them in those markets because just as an example, when I looked into Latin America, you know, I don't think you need home insurance. I don't think you need renters' insurance. So how do you want to resemble what you have, what people have built in, in the US there? But a big thing is apparently life insurance. It's interesting to see and hear from you.
2: Most definitely. Yeah, we should have we should have some offline sessions at some point.
3: Absolutely, man. Absolutely.
2: Well, was that your was that your anything in the world question for us? Or how are you feeling? <laughs>
3: <laughs> that, that was ah. one of them. That was one of them. What are you guys like? Uh, first of all, I appreciate you guys doing this. This is great for the community. And I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts and really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me, of course.
2: Of course, of course, man.
3: Thank you. I'm so here. are you guys f- focusing mostly on this these days or are you doing investing on the side or what are you most focused on?
2: Clay, you say what you're up to, then I'll say what I'm up to.
0: Yeah, we're both trying to do a lot of things at the same time. So I work at a company called Visible, which helps streamline investor reporting for venture and growth equity funds. I'm doing that while still running Confluence. Tyler and I manage a syndicate on the side of this. Like we're pulling a little bit of money together and getting into seed and series A deals. And then we have a couple other things we're doing. On top of that, but those are really our our primary, at least for me, that's where I'm, I'm primarily spending my time right now.
2: So nice. but I'd say our product roadmap is pretty cool. All of it's around the thesis of uplifting this current and next generation of investors, enabling them to be better investors, and in some cases become entrepreneurs, whether it be their own companies or their own funds. So stay That's tuned. Great. And then I guess on my end, what I'm working on, three buckets. One is Confluence, obviously, which is like sure. my with, with Clay. And honestly, without Clay, this thing isn't even possible. Then I run a holding company that's like effectively a startup builder called Popular Change alongside one of the co-founders of Virgin Mobile and Notel. And we have two companies, one of which is the one that raised the seed from Tigers and local commerce. Got it. One, uh, another one is in PropTech. I mean, he built WeWork's biggest competitor. It makes sense for us to go build something else in the space. And then we got a, a pipeline of a few others that are interesting. And then the last thing is I invest as a GP, or not GP, but as a venture investor and an LP with the Lauder family. So the people who own ST Lauder, so I think like cosmetics and stuff.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. So what is like your investment angle over there? I mean, is it like a consumer? And what, what is the angle? I mean, you said you've been taking digital health. is like your, your stuff that you like, but I assume it's not for ST Lauder. Yeah,
2: so it's because it's not like SC Lauder's venture arm; it's the family. Got it. Uh, a lot more flexible, so it's really just things that we think can one, got it, and okay, and two, make good returns while doing so.
3: Absolutely. Um,
2: yeah, I, I would get like really complex and like deep about it, but if we we gonna keep it short and simple and what it really is that you got money, so make something good happen with it and, and don't lose it.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And then me and Clay also do some consulting stuff, which is fun.
3: That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I really like your kind of confluence podcast that you have built over there on the platform. So kudos to you guys.
0: Thank you, brother.
2: Yo, Clay, take us out of here with, the, with this, with the rapid fire.
0: Cool, let's do it. So Amir, we have these five questions at the end, it's supposed to be answered in two sentences or less. First one we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? That's a good one. That's a good one. I think, I don't know if, he, if I hear this regularly, but I think I touched
3: base on it uh, before is that I think, I don't know if that's the right word or right expression to say fake it till you make it or stay stuff that others want to hear. And I've seen it multiple times that people are like, yeah, say X, Y, and Z. So the investor gets more excited. I think that's not the right way to look at it. Not even, I think in general also in life and with, with other people, like you should not, say something just to please the other party and no matter what situation so i think the more honest and transparent you are the more i think you will get out of life and that's how i actually got where i am today so be honest transparent be direct ask the question and say you don't know it i think that goes the long way rather than be like hey i have figured everything out and we're the best company out there and i'm the best entrepreneur
0: yeah, I feel like you got to be direct to separate yourself from the pack. If not, you're just going to be saying echoing every, everybody else. Like it's possible to stand out that way.
3: Absolutely, man. Yeah, I
0: always, for me, like honesty is one of the most important
3: things because when you think about like there's three things: honesty, trust, and loyalty. And a lot of people start with, "Oh, I want you to be loyal," and I'm like, "Hey, but you skip two parts, right?" So I think the trust part it builds like the honesty part builds trust and the trust builds loyalty. So I think that's how I look at it, no matter who I'm interacting.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. The next one we got in the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? Yeah, I think that it might be a little bit
3: cliche, but I, I always was like very healthy and I, I work out, try to eat healthy, really not to indulge that much. And I really realized taking care more of myself is really important. So I've been even more health conscious than ever before and try to really be on my own stuff because as we've seen, the world kind of turned upside down. A lot of people unfortunately passed away and that kind of made me even feel stronger about like health and health related issues.
0: I totally agree with that. I don't think, we talked about that enough, but I think easiest way to level up your life is just to get in fantastic shape
3: and like, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Build I mean, a habit
0: to do that every single day. If you can't do that, you got to reevaluate your priorities, but I don't know. I've done the same thing, especially over the last two years. I've always been surrounded by sports and fitness, but like I've really taken a deeper appreciation of that over the last two years. And I don't know. I think it gives you a lot better clarity on everything. And if you just don't have to worry about. Health issues. It's one less distraction.
3: And as you said, I mean, as you said, if you work out and if you eat healthy, you feel better. You feel better. You think better. You enjoy things differently, right? So I don't know. A lot of people that I've interacted with, oh, I gained like twenty pounds during the pandemic, and actually, it was the opposite for me. Like, really, I tried to take more time to work out or take more time to be health conscious. I understand everybody has a busy life. It's really hard to. If you have even kids if you have a family and so on and so forth you have obligations but i always hate it when people say i don't have time for that i feel like saying i don't have time for something is because as you said you have other priorities right so you can always like sneak out for 20 minutes even if it's at home or even if it's in the office to do something to be more healthier
0: yeah i totally agree everybody listening get to the gym <laughs> start banging gym, weights yeah. Bang and iron. <laughs> Start pushing weights. Yeah. Next one we got aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture?
3: I think I touched base on it before earlier in this conversation I, and, it, and it, kind of relates to that is that everything is really, really competitive and there is just so much money out there. And I think one of the worst parts is really to having to walk away from the deal. Right. Because like, it doesn't really make sense for the fund economics it really doesn't make sense to put the money in because even if you get let's say 500,000 dollar allocation a 10 million dollar round there's nothing that you can associate with this deal and so i think that's getting more and more complicated as more and more money is coming in as you know touching base on what i said earlier getting to getting into the right deal and getting the right allocation i think is really becoming one of the not the worst parts but one of the tough
0: parts of venture yeah i totally agree we've had that that same answer from a couple other guests i feel like so much effort is going into allocation it used I mean, to be like a like- lot of it used to be like a lot of the effort was just going into sourcing and finding the right deals now it's like more is more of that is being taken and just spent towards getting allocation which is a game within the game
3: Absolutely. I mean, I was talking to this entrepreneur, super smart. I really liked him. He was doing some interesting stuff in the healthcare space. And he was raising a big round. And I was like, listen, even if I participate with a million or two, that's it's not really worthwhile, the effort here, right? Because if I get two or 3% ownership for my fund, even if you are a billion dollar company, that's not even going to return my fund. It's really hard to say, to walk away from this, but it's unfortunate reality.
0: Yeah. Totally agree. Next one we got, what's your best piece of feedback or advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture?
3: Yeah, that's a good one. And I think it's kind of overlooked maybe a little bit, but I would say build your brand as early as possible, right? And try to find a sector, a category, whatever you want to call it that you really like and that you think you can be the best in, and continue to learn about it. When I started my career venture, as I mentioned, I was thrown into the big category of fintech and insurtech without knowing about it, but I really enjoyed it. And when I was talking to more and more VCs, I realized that everybody's doing enterprise software. Everybody's doing like this and that, like being a generalist these days, I think I still wonder how these guys are doing it. Kudos to them who really it the right way. But I feel to differentiate yourself, you have to be a specialist. And I think that's how I was able to differentiate myself Mm -hmm. with Aviate as well and how I'm able to get the deals I am right now because people appreciate the knowledge I have in those sectors. And that's how I bring my my expertise and my brand in. And that's how I built my brand around myself. I think the other one probably is operational experience helps a lot. There's different opinions about it, but I believe if you have some operational experience in a startup for a couple of years and that puts you ahead uh, of others. And it also helps you really understand what a startup and entrepreneur is going through, right? If you haven't been on the other side, it's really hard to understand what this company is really going through, right? Or what this entrepreneur is feeling. You don't have to really start a company. You don't have to be like the second person on the team, but really being early in a startup to understand what what the different kind of levels all that a startup is going through is really helpful to understand on an investment perspective when you talk to other entrepreneurs down the road.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with both of those. I've just started giving unsolicited feedback to all my friends that aren't in VC because it seems like this idea of just sharing your work in public is pretty common in yeah. the venture and startup yeah. world, but other s- sectors, which is like most of, Workforce, it's not. And I don't know. I was a late adopter to it myself. Like we started Confluence about a year and a half ago before that. I was not active online at all. I kept all my thoughts to myself. And now just seeing how everything has changed in those last eighteen, you have no idea what you're holding yourself back from if you just if you don't share that. I mean, it's the definition of an asymmetric bet. putting your thoughts out there, like seeing who it attracts, seeing who you can connect with based on that. It's just a magnet for potential growth. And I think everybody should do that and just see what comes of it.
3: I totally agree with you, man. I think even if you put it out there and I haven't done it myself, I'm guilty myself. But I think if I would start over again, I would start writing more and more because also writing helps you to understand more. And as you said, attract other people that think alike and maybe don't think alike, but give you a different opinion.
0: Yeah, the people that did that 10, 12 years ago are reaping the rewards of it right now. So absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Best time to get started was yesterday. Next best time is today. Last question here is who's a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to? That's a tough question. I think it's really hard to name,
3: name people here as there have been too many people who have helped me along the way. So naming one would be hard, but those who have been, there for me, know who they are. And these are people from the time in Germany that really supported me on my endeavor to come to the U.S., be it personally or professionally, but also making my way up here in the U.S. and being a partner at a fund. So there was a lot of people who saw so something in me, I guess, and helped me along the way. Those out there, they they know who they are, and I, I don't want to name names because I feel I might forget one, and that will not look good. <laughs> if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, no. I feel like once you get to that point in your career, there's just too many people to to name. Yeah. I feel like most of our most of the people we have on are relatively early in their career, and they're like, oh yeah, we got like two or three people that really played a big impact. But yeah, I'm sure you have a pretty long list of names, so don't I, want to single mean- anybody out. I really love the quote that Steve Jobs
3: made was like, you can't connect the dots forward. You have to connect them backwards. And when I think about that and where I am today and I see the dots and the people who really helped me throughout the journey. Yeah.
0: I love that. I think that wraps things up on my end, unless there's anything else last minute that you think I missed or you want to touch on again.
3: No, all good, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed being on this. Uh, Again, appreciate you guys doing this for the community. It's really, I think, helpful for younger VCs to listen to these podcasts and see what other VCs and emerging VCs are thinking and how they got to where they are. So kudos to you guys for doing this for the community. It's amazing.
0: We appreciate Uh, it, man. And we appreciate you you taking time. So yeah, we'll let you get back to it. But thanks so much again for coming on. Sounds good,
3: guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, man. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, bro. Bye.
1: Huge thanks again to Amir for coming on. We hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Amir, we've linked his social info within the description below. If you're looking to get more out of your listening experience, we also write a weekly newsletter with more resources, jobs, and other things you might be interested in. That link's going to be www.confluence.substack.com. For next
0: steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.bc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles you can subscribe there at
1: www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from y'all soon.